0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Duncan Macargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a Professor of Political Science here at the University of Copenhagen. With me today is the Danish journalist and author Nina Tri Andersen, We'll be talking about her book, Labour Pioneers, Economy, Labour and Migration in Filipino-Danish Relations, 1950 to 2015, which was published by Ateneo de Manila University Press in 2019. Nina, welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So, Labour Pioneers examines the role Filipino migrant workers performed in the Danish economy during the post-war period with a particular emphasis on female workers who came to Copenhagen to be employed in the burgeoning hotel industry during the 60s and 70s. It's based on incredibly meticulous archival and interview research. It's a book about pioneering labor, which is itself an example of pioneering work. And I was immediately struck by the incredible rigor of the project, which really reads like a book based on a a very well-supervised PhD thesis from a major research university. But it's actually a piece of independent scholarship. I think we better start there, Nina. You're not an academic by training, but you've written what's actually a fantastic academic book. And how did that happen exactly?
1: Well, I was trained originally in both journalism and history as a double major from the University of Boston. So I've always been with a foot in both worlds, I guess. Yes. Working as a journalist mainly, but also working as a historian. So I've had research and networks of more traditional academics along the way. So I participate in conferences and stuff with the historians and labor historians and migration researchers. And I guess I decided to write the book like outside of the institutional academic world to give myself the liberty to follow whatever trace I found worth to follow. So not to be restricted by time limits, research grants and things like that. Because I really wanted to just follow all the traces that I found necessary to follow. And I could combine that with my journalism work because I went to the Philippines several times along the years to do more traditional journalism. But then I could also go to the archives and trace people that were kind of hard to find so many years later.
0: Right. And maybe you could say a little bit about that, the journalistic work that you've been doing. And you say you went to the Philippines to write stories about what was going on there. So what kind of journalistic work were you doing on the trips to the Philippines?
1: Well, in my first trips there, I was writing actually mostly about the Mindanao conflict mm-hmm. in southern Philippines. And I was writing also about the colonial heritage and how it was still alive in several different contemporary issues and about urban-rural relations and things like that. But then that was also a time in history when the migration from the Philippines to Denmark reignited, but in a different mm-hmm. way. So yes. that was in the years when the au pair migration really took off. So a lot of Filipinas came to Denmark, like several thousand mm. a year, suddenly. And naturally that caught the eye of the media. And I started also reporting about that. Yes. But then I, I came across this group of uh, women that were recruited in 73. And they became my entrance to understanding that there was like actually a very long recruitment history of Filipino workers to the Danish economy that went back to the guest worker era, which even though I had also worked with the labor migration as a historian, kind of a little bit uh, surprising to me because what you usually hear about that era is that it was male workers recruited from mm-hmm. the manufacturing industry and they came from you know countries such as Turkey and Pakistan and things like that. So this was a group of workers recruited in a period that fallen between the, the cracks of history. And I, I really wanted to know more about that also as a way to kind of explain better these new forms of migration that people were treating as something that was like super sudden and very surprising. And mm-hmm. so it was a way to contextualize that So I actually still wrote journalism about the newer forms of migration, but I started taking much more interest in the backdrop of that uh, migration, Right. so digging into that history.
0: Yeah, so you made a a somewhat unusual transition of wanting to dig out the backstory in more depth than is usually possible in in a journalistic context.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: So perhaps you could say something for the benefit of our listeners who don't know much about this, and I certainly knew very little about it until I started reading your book. What was the significance of Philippine migrant workers coming into Denmark, particularly in the, I guess, the heart of your book is this period, the 60s and 70s and the hotel business. So can you tell us something about the importance of that phenomenon?
1: Yes. Well, the first group of migrants from that period that I started interviewing was the ones who came to call themselves the 49ers. Yes. And they called themselves that because they were 49 women recruited at the same moment for one particular hotel in Copenhagen. And that was the Hotel Scandinavia. At that time, it was built by the Scandinavian Airlines in collaboration with the the American hotel chain Westin. Mm -hmm. And it was a a really big hotel at the moment, like the biggest in Northern Europe. I mean, now there's full of big hotels everywhere in Europe, including in Copenhagen. But at that time, it was a very new phenomenon in the cityscape of Copenhagen with these huge hotels. And naturally, when such a big hotel opened, they needed a lot of workers and they needed them like right now. So what they said, at least, is that they couldn't find sufficient labor in Denmark who wanted to take that kind of work, as for instance, uh, chambermaids. And as it happened, the CEO of the Hotel Scandinavia at the time, an American, he had worked with a colleague in a Singaporean hotel, the Shangri-La, and Mm -hmm. that was his uh, Singaporean colleague who said, like, well, in our neighboring country, the poor Philippines, you can recruit as many workers as you need, basically. And he went as the one who interviewed these uh, Mm -hmm. women. In Manila to recruit them, but actually that group was only, you could say, like the last big batch that came in that period, because very shortly after, like 21 days after they arrived, Denmark adopted this so-called immigration stop. Mm -hmm. So most of of the generation that call themselves the Filipino pioneers that came in the 60s and 70s. They arrived before the 49ers, and it was through the 49ers that I came to meet some of the earlier migrants, and they were very central in the whole quest of Copenhagen to become this more global, you know, metropolis. It was quite a provincial uh, little Mm -hmm. town (laughs) at that time, and the 60s and 70s uh, was really changing the the city, like with these, for example, the big hotels was, uh, was a major driver of a lot of economic development and bringing the world to Copenhagen. And the Filipino workers were a very significant part of the labor force in these hotels from their opening when they were built in the 60s and 70s.
0: Right. I mean, even though things have moved on, it's still an iconic hotel, the hotel you're talking about. That's the one that's now the SAS Radisson, which we see from Tivoli and and looking down across the bridge over the water. So it still looms over us as a kind of statement of modernity and what your book provides is, is a context for how that modernity was filled out in the early 70s.
1: Certainly, yeah, it's still very iconic in the cityscape. And so were a lot of the other hotels. Some of them says also built other hotels yes. like in Copenhagen, like the Royal Hotel near the Central Station. Right. And then there's the Sheraton that is near the lake, which was also super iconic. And you can read from newspapers from the time, you know, Danish newspapers, they are describing how inhabitants of Copenhagen are looking with awe and this huge buildings and are kind of afraid that they're going to fall over if if it gets too windy. And, you know, at that time, there was not really tall buildings in Copenhagen. So these are a huge symbol of of modernity and globalization in, in this part of the world. and naturally also the workers were because they also recruited Filipinos not only because it was an easy and and cheap form of labor to recruit but also because they had some particular skills that was needed in the hotels that was not about what their formal function Mm -hmm. was I mean not just about cleaning but also the fact that they spoke English for example which not many Danish people did at the time Right. and it was very convenient for the hotel to have an English speaking labor force now that they wanted to recruit a lot of tourism and corporate conferences and stuff from for example the U.S and other parts of the world. So there were also this kind of internationalization of Denmark, you know, making it more attractive to the world.
0: Right. So it's very interesting that the Scandinavian region in its attempts to modernize and internationalize and make itself more cosmopolitan then ends up being bringing a bunch of people from Southeast Asia to, yes. to play a central role in that process. There are so many layers of irony in the story that you're telling in this book.
1: Yes, and some of the Filipinas who came in that period is also recalling, you know, how they felt coming to this strange little city in the north, you know, that everything was super old-fashioned. People were wearing really strange clothes and Mm -hmm. not really showering that often. (laughs) In the Philippines, they were used to like American fashion. And Manila was obviously already at that time was a huge city and had a much different dynamic than this little capital in, in Denmark. So they were a little bit wondering, you know, (laughs) what's with this, you know, capital of Denmark. It's like a little town in rural Philippines.
0: (laughs) Right. Now you've already started referring to the group of people who perhaps it will be accurate to say they form the core or the heart of your story, the 49ers, this group yes. of women who arrived, as you say, just before this, this magic cutoff date in 73, at a time, of mm-hmm. course, when things were quite tumultuous all over the place, including in the Philippines itself. It's quite a, oh, an yes. important moment. Uh, so what kind of women were this group who arrived at this very important moment in 1973 to work in that hotel what sort of backgrounds did they have what education and what hopes and dreams
1: well they were a quite diverse group actually both in terms of age and also in terms of where in the Philippines they came from like a lot of them came from the provinces surrounding Manila but not Mm -hmm. from Manila but some of them also came from further south so they were quite diverse most of them didn't know each other where when mm-hmm. they were recruited, some of them had relatives in Denmark that were already working there. So they had been referred by their relatives. When their relatives found out that, you know, this new hotel is opening, they need a lot of mm-hmm. workers, they would send recommendations to their relatives and say, you know, there is going to be this job interview in Manila, you should apply for it. So they came like from different parts of the Philippines. Some of them were very young and some of them mm-hmm. were maybe in their 30s when they yes. were recruited. And they also had quite different backgrounds in terms of education. But one thing that was common for most of them was that they did have education and it was not education within the hotel and restaurant business. One was an accountant, one was a teacher. In the Philippines, it would usually be educations that you would take in the university. And then Mm -hmm. those occupations were not necessarily university educations yet. But they had what would amount to like, let's say, a bachelor degree nowadays in a Danish context within various fields of disciplines. And most of them were not really eager to to be chambermaids as such. They had a lot of different motivations for going to Denmark for a job that was way different and below their educational qualifications like one of the main characters of the book for her it was a way of getting a year away from her very authoritarian father for another it was because she wanted to join her younger sister who had uh, migrated there and for a a third of them it was because she was the youngest of her siblings and her father was very sick and they couldn't afford the medication so she was kind of like collectively tasked with that job of going to secure finances for her father's treatment and another one came from a province south of Manila, like a fisher village. And she had migrated to Manila first to try to work there. And that was very difficult for her because she was a, a rural girl and mm-hmm. she, she really couldn't manage in the huge city dynamics and her and her you know, cousin got scammed and all that. So she was like, well, It wasn't, you know, that much harder to migrate to the other part of the world than to migrate to Manila. It was already a very big difference between the rural part of of the Philippines and the city. So they had all kinds of different motivations for going there. And most of them thought it was going to be temporary. The recruitment was for a one-year contract. So they would be like, well, let's try this for a year and then, you know. They had many different plans. Some wanted to migrate on to the U.S. or Canada. Mm -hmm. Some wanted to go back and build uh, a life in the Philippines. And then for many different reasons, like life happens and things you didn't expect happens. And then a lot of them actually ended up staying in Denmark, at least until now. Right. So building a life there instead of just going for, for one year of work.
0: Right. So themes that come through are, first of all, an extremely talented and, as you say, often very overqualified group of people who clearly could be doing something at a much higher level than this relatively menial hotel work that they've been recruited for. And then the transition between thinking that you're going going somewhere for a year and ending up very often there for the rest of your life or for many decades came upon them. I mean, I've made a number of visits to the Philippines and I'm always struck by the very large proportion of people who either have spent time working overseas or are planning to spend time working overseas or whose family and friends are working overseas. There's an incredibly strong tradition, if that's the right term in the Philippines, of this overseas working. And yet, from the outside, it looks like a rather curious policy for any government to be pursuing because it amounts to a kind of deliberate brain drain, sending a lot of the most capable people that you have out of the country. This is a a persistent problem that the Philippines has suffered from for decades and continues to suffer from to this day. So could you explain Mm -hmm. a bit about the context for why would the Philippine state and government agencies be deeply involved in this process of exporting people when exporting people in many ways would seem to be counter to the national interest?
1: Yeah, well, that's a very complex story, and there were a lot of different interests involved in this whole process. And the whole brain drain problem was something that Philippine state officials and researchers was very aware of from, mm-hmm. from way back, also before the 70s. It would drain all parts of the economy also, like, right. for example, like people skilled within rural production, for example. Right. So it was actually all sectors of the economy that was suffering from this strain of skilled labor it was a very complex process that led up to this, that people who deal with migration in, in the Philippines today, known as the labor code of 74, which was what yes. like instituted what we know today as the Philippine state agency for labor migration, like the POEA, mm-hmm. yes. Philippine Overseas Employment Administration. The predecessor of that was instituted in 74, but the practices of Filipino labor officials being involved in this goes way back, of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has roots in colonial times, but also after the Philippines became an independent state, there was pre-work done that was establishing the structures that came into place in 74. They Mm -hmm. were in the making already from from the late 1960s. That's also what I'm trying to elaborate in my book. Because a lot Mm -hmm. of the research on this is a little bit superficial. It's like Mm -hmm. you you state that there was this labor code of 74 that kind of started it all, which is, of course, not true because nothing just starts. Suddenly, there's always a, a process that goes before. So that's why I started also chasing both people and archival material that could explain this story of how that came to be, because it is such an interesting phenomenon. How did the state become so involved in this? And if you look at it from the state bureaucracy perspective, there was a very powerful minister under Marcus government, the labor minister of Las And mm-hmm. he was given the liberty to completely reorganize the labor department. And he had a lot of ideas about how to do that. So he basically got rid of a huge part of the, the bureaucrats in the labor department when he started. And then he recruited a lot of young people straight from mm-hmm. university to kind of make an entirely new department. And the idea for making a state-managed labor export was influenced from many places. One of them, you could say, was part of a more general export orientation of the economy, which was on the advice of international institutions like the IMF, the ILO, recommending this as a way to stabilize the Philippine economy. And then, I mean, when they were talking about export orientation, they were, of course, talking about export of all kinds of goods. But actually, Mm -hmm. labor was also mentioned in some of these recommendations from international institutions. Like, that could be an interesting thing to look at. And then some of the labor officials were recruited to be part of implementing this program saw it also as a way to kind of, that's also a narrative you hear today, you know, like a temporary relief of the unemployment right. situation, of course.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's this this decades-long yeah. temporary policy.
1: <laughs> exactly. And of course, it, it wasn't temporary. It became very permanent. And what was even known to the Labor Department already from the beginning is that it wasn't the unemployed that went abroad. Primarily, right. because you needed some form of resources to actually m- make that travel. So it would usually be people who actually had jobs already, who yes. would then be able to mobilize the resources to, to go for looking for better opportunities abroad. So, yeah, it wasn't unemployment that was exported. It was just workers and many of them skilled. Then there were also the labor minister is generally seen as one of the more like leftist forces of the mm-hmm. Marxist government. He yes. was also very inspired by Scandinavian social democracy which also has a very authoritarian streak, the the Scandinavian uh, social democratic tradition. So not so foreign for that kind of Uh government that was in the Philippines at at that time. But some of the officials who were recruited for the labor department were some had even been involved in the anti-markers movement before they yes. were recruited for the labor ministry and some of them came with the idea that they could help their fellow Filipinos migrate under safer conditions and more fair mm-hmm. conditions because at that time there was already a huge private market of agencies that were offering opportunities abroad and a lot of people also just went like on their own in undocumented ways and got into trouble so the idea from the beginning was to a, make a state monopoly of labor migration so to completely outmaneuver the private agencies they were also banned for a period at least officially when they started this state export so to monopolize it within the state structures this whole business of people going abroad for work as a way to give some kind of security to the workers but of course that's not always how it happened and also the private agencies before uh, the end of the 70s were let back in for many reasons Partly lobbying, of course, from the from the private agencies who were not ready to give up their very lucrative business, but also because the demand for Filipino labor just really exploded like worldwide, also in the oil producing Arab states. So the state agency couldn't actually follow the pace. So they kind of let back in the private recruitment agencies and a lot of the people who were involved of the labor officials i've both looked into the to the archival material that does mm-hmm. exist there's a lot of holes in the archival in the archives of the labor department and the oadb but there is some material but i've also interviewed several of the labor officials who worked there in the early 70s both to know what did you do like specifically mm-hmm. in this period but also to know what do you think about it now 50 years yes. later now that you know how things developed right. what do you think about it now And well, one of them is also reflecting about that in the book and saying that she still thinks it was the right thing to do, that the state went in there and tried to, you know, get some order. But she also can see that it became like the perfect distraction for the Philippine state to avoid dealing with the domestic problems of the economy. So. You could export your financial problems, but you could also export political discontent because there was also actually something yep. the labor minister said completely straight up. He was like, well, if you don't like it here, you're free to migrate. Uh, don't make right. trouble at home. <laughs> right.
0: right. Yes. There's a lot that we could talk about in, in that respect. That's a very, very interesting idea. How did you go about doing the fieldwork for this project? Clearly, you got to know some of these informants, particularly the 49ers, as you call them, quite well. What sort of a process did you go through? I know that you were engaged in the research for this book for quite a number of years. So you must have really immersed yourself in that community.
1: Yes, I was. And I still am. I mean, just the other week, I, I went to have lunch in the Koloniheu, which is Danish tradition of uh, having a little plot of land uh, within the city where you can grow vegetables. Right. One yep. of the 49ers has a Colony hill. And mm-hmm. I went there to have lunch with her just last week. So I still speak with a lot of the people that are yes. in the group. but the 49ers were the first of the pioneers that I met and I met them through the daughter of one of them. Uh, we were working mm-hmm. on an art, art project together and she showed me this picture that also appears in the book of the before departure from manila this group photo of the 49ers so they were like my entry into this whole um, community and all of these stories and four of them they have been recurring narrators both in the yes in the english book but also that there was a danish book that came right that. it was through them and through some of the filipino organizations and some of the second generation filipinos in denmark that i started getting to know like a lot of the Other pioneers, those who came before the 49ers and also those that came after, because of course, now we were talking in the beginning about this so-called migration stop in 73, 74, but that obviously didn't stop migration. I mean, migration just continued under other conditions. So there's also generations arriving after them who entered on other uh, legal forms, but who became very central in the trade unionizing uh, movement in the hotels in Copenhagen. So it was kind of like going from one person to the next and between the archives and the people to put together the pieces of this puzzle. And then it was while I was looking at this history of what came before the 74 labor code, I was reading a lot of the old annual reports from the labor department and from the, the early reports of the OEDB. I was like mapping the names of the people who appeared, you know, in the in the first page to be, you know, employed with, with the agency and then i try to see like who can i find of them i mean some of them must still be yes. alive and and i did find some of them to interview them about mm-hmm. these things to kind of to fill out all the holes that were in the in the archive so it's been like a constant search for people and papers and photos because a lot of it is not included in any official archives so right that's also why it was such a big advantage that I actually worked with this for almost a decade so I had yes. time to you know search and search for things that were supposedly lost but a lot of the things that were supposedly lost actually did appear along the right. way Yeah. papers and people
0: no, I mean, the book is a great testament to the value of doing long-term research, mm-hmm. really digging deeply and not, clearly you didn't often take no for an answer and that, no. uh, <laughs> that uh, comes through very strongly in the book. And the other thing I suppose may reflect your journalistic training, but as you say, picking out, certainly in the English book, these four Informants, I think uh, Pina, Letty, Christina, Josie. And in part mm-hmm. two, they get their own short chapters and tell their stories so that you have a lot of very rich, illustrative anecdote about the kinds of experiences that these women have that really bring the story to life. And that's very powerful.
1: Yeah, and one of the things I also wanted to do with that, because I mean, it's a little bit untraditional to have such uh, elaborated life stories mm. in, in a book of this type. But I really thought they were important, these life stories and their relations to their reflections about their own lives also and the relations that they made and the ones they lost and stuff. Because a lot of research on migration is very informed by this whole, you know, cost-benefit idea. Like, so... Do the benefits outweigh the costs and yes, yes. or not? And I've always found that to be a very strange question. I mean, the answer always seems wrong, you know, Like, but that's one of the things that I, that I also conclude in the book is that the reason why the answer to that question is always wrong is because it's the question that's wrong. I mean, you can't look at yes. migration in that framework. Right. It just doesn't make sense because the things that people gain and the things that they lose, The way that their lives unfold is just much more complicated than whether the benefits outweigh the cost. I mean, that could be answered in a million different ways if you look at it individually, collectively, structurally. Yeah, so it's much more useful to to look at it from a completely different angle.
0: Right. I mean, you make a strong case for what we might call a a humanistic approach to doing research as opposed to one that's purely driven by economic data or indices and things of (laughs) that kind. I guess the other side of it, I'm obviously particularly interested in the Philippines or the Philippines side of things, but uh, as the Nordic Asia podcast, we're very interested in the Nordic region too. What kind of impact did the presence of these migrants, these women have on Denmark, on labor relations in Denmark, and what did Danish people make of them?
1: Well, one thing is that they were part of bringing the world to Denmark, as we mm-hmm. were talking about in the beginning. So they were, you know, like this exotic and exciting part of the new Copenhagen. And a lot of them made friends with Danish people, like their colleagues and the colleagues of those colleagues. And, and there was this whole community between the people who worked in the, in the big hotels and the people who worked in the airport, where a lot of yes. Filipinos also worked. So there was this whole social dimension of it. And a lot of them made lasting relationships with Danish friends and colleagues. And then there was, of course, the response from the Danish trade union that was organizing workers in the hotels and the restaurants and the airport. That was a different union. But the Danish trade unions have a history of being a little bit, I mean, of course, they have this whole, you know, international solidarity approach. But when things start getting difficult, if, for example, you know, the unemployment start rising, right. they adopt this default attitude. Well, then it's yep. the... Foreign-born workers who have to go right. Yeah, so, right. Danish not a, not only workers. in Denmark.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah,
1: not only in Denmark. That's <laughs> right. a very, uh, very, very universal. common phenomenon. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So of course there was this dilemma also for the Danish unions in this period mm-hmm. because when when the pioneers came, it was in a period, you know, the, the late 60s and early 70s when the economy was expanding super rapidly both in Denmark and in Western Europe. But then came the oil crisis that set in motion a lot of economic events. Then Unemployment started rising, and then the trade union of the hotel and restaurant workers were not so excited about these new colleagues. And actually, they had been welcoming them in a way, but in a very distant way. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the pioneers and the 49ers cannot recall most of them ever having been approached by the union, even though they were actually most of them members from the beginning, because at that time in Danish history, Most of the foreign workers who came, they became members of the union immediately. I mean, a lot of workplaces Mm -hmm. also simply did not allow unorganized workers to work there. Right, it's a closed system. Yeah, totally. And and they so they were in effect members of a union, but that the union kept talking about them in third person, you know, not right. addressing them as as actual members. And also not at all uh, communicating in other languages than Danish, which was a huge problem for the recruitment and the, and the mobilizing of foreign-born workers for the first many decades, like from the 60s until the 90s. Mm-hmm. Because the Danish unions were, were like, well, if you don't learn the language, you, you shouldn't be here. So we're not right. going to speak anything else. Right? Yes. <laughs> but, so, but that kind of changed from the 80s and 90s, especially when the hotel and restaurant worker sector, because that was a sector that from the early 70s had a majority yes. of workers yes. from outside of Denmark, especially in the Copenhagen area, of course. So it was actually one of the first unions in the Danish landscape of trade unions that started adopting other positions Mm. on how to relate to members that had a foreign background and communicating in other languages. But it was also under a lot of pressure from particularly the Filipino chambermates that were in the forefront of a lot of struggles that took place in the, from the late eighties and into the nineties in the hotel sector about a lot of stuff that happened with the restructuring of that sector. In particular, this decade, new companies coming to buy up old companies and Mm -hmm. uh, international chains coming in and completely reorganizing workers' uh, conditions and all these chains of subcontracting. And the Filipina chambermaids were very central in, you could say, like tuning up the the Danish hotel and restaurant workers union to to deal with this situation. And they were in the picket lines of most of the big hotels in Copenhagen during the 90s, fighting for their own rights and fighting against this development of subcontracting. And actually, the recruitment of Filipina chambermaids, who then recruited other Filipina chambermaids, actually doubled the membership of the Copenhagen French in this period. Yes, Um, right. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So they played quite an important role in the whole transformation of the Danish trade union sector, like the way they dealt with uh, migration and with mobilizing and with, you know, how to actually do labor struggle in a new economy. Because it was also quite an awakening for the Danish trade Mm -hmm. union movement, because it had been such a calm, social democratic class compromise for many decades. And then suddenly, you know, the tune just uh, shifted like from one day, well, not from one day to the next, but it kind of felt like that, I think, for the union. Right. And they were very dispersed and confused about how to deal with this new form of labor relations.
0: Yeah, we're hoping very much that inspired by this podcast, lots of our listeners will be able to find time to read the whole book. But for the benefit of those who might not find that time, what would you say are the most important takeaways from your book?
1: Wow, that's a hard question. It is.
2: Yes, <laughs> I think is. there are
1: so many <laughs> important things that yeah. I learned Aww. along the way. So, so I'm I'm really not quite sure. I mean, I think some of the things that we've already talked about, you know, the importance of actually, well, uh, you can do that when you deal with contemporary history. Of course, you can't do yes. the same if you're dealing with, you know, 17th century history, but the importance right. of actually speaking to the people who were involved and the importance of digging behind established narratives because- yes. The book questions a lot of very established narratives about both who came to work in Europe Mm -hmm. in this period, why and where, and, you know, right. So it kind of inserts a whole different group of workers into the center of this narrative. And also the whole idea about how the Philippines ventured into state labor export. It also Mm -hmm. complicates that narrative quite a lot. So I think it's really important that we as historians and, and whatever other disciplines we have that When something has been very established as a narrative, like about how something came to be, you can usually complicate that narrative substantially, because there are always people who fall between the cracks. And of course, those things are not, you know, coincidental. It's it's not coincidental that it's women from the Philippines working in the service sector that just didn't get a place in the history until, uh, until way later.
0: Yes. I mean, the book really emphasizes the importance of telling the stories of those whose stories have been left less told, the hidden figures, if you like, of the narratives Mm -hmm. and the, the importance of nuance, depth and complexity, where very often we find oversimplifications and misrepresentations that are convenient, but not really at all accurate.
1: And also daring to let people emerge as interpreters of their own story. Indeed. I mean, that's also something I I try to to do with the the very extensive life story part. Right. Is to actually enable people to also interpret their own story, like in in hindsight to say, like, so I did these individual choices, but they were also part of, you know, things that were out of my hands. And how did I then try to deal with those things? And how do I evaluate my life choices? Like now that I'm retired, you know, looking back. Yes. When I was still 21 and took this, you know, completely life-changing decision.
0: Yeah. Right. Yes. No. That's something that, as as we've said, comes through very strongly from the book. Where do you go with this from here, Nina? Are you still doing related work on on these groups of people and these issues?
1: Well, one of the things I'm still working on is to make available some of these resources that I have been collecting along the way, you know, all of mm-hmm. this material that really wasn't to be found in any in the formal archives. So right. I'm, I'm working on uploading that to a website. It's called Philippine, Denmark, Histo- uh, Philippine History of Denmark. It's a website where I'm trying to, you know, upload some of these materials that I have uh, collected along the way with permission right. from, the, from the owners of it, of course so that more people can also look into this, because there are a ton of more things you could write, obviously, about this part of the Danish and Philippine history, and also for people to be able to reclaim their own history, the people who were involved in this part of history. And then there's a lot of other things that I I still want to to dig in uh, deeper to, which some of it is is the whole Union history, Mm -hmm. the role that Filipinas played in the Union, because that's something that the Danish unions are still struggling with, understanding what a huge resource migrant workers are in the whole right. labor struggle instead of viewing it as you know a problem and something that's difficult and actually seeing that when you provide the opportunities for migrant workers to fight their own battles they can really mm-hmm. become a huge resource for the union. Right. So I'm 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 going to keep working on some of these aspects also.
0: Great. Well thank you Nina for taking the time to discuss your fascinating book Labor Pioneers with us.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for for inviting me.
0: Thanks very much. I'm Duncan Macargo, and the director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and I've been in conversation with the journalist Nina Tri Anderson about her groundbreaking book, *Labor Pioneers: Economy, Labor, and Migration in Filipino-Danish Relations, 1950 to 2015*, which is published by Ateneo de Manila University Press in 2019. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. <laughs> You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.